Uh, we're continuing our series, a study through the book of James. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us today. Uh, Lord, already our hearts are warmed, thrilled, excited about what's happening with Rachel, what happened last week with Ruth. Father, this is a church on the move. It's a church on fire. And we pray that there will be none of us who is looking at somebody over there that's on fire or somebody that's over there that's on fire. Father, we want every person here, total member involvement, total participation of every single person saying, I'm going to take the gospel seriously. I'm going to take the gospel commission seriously. I want to be a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. Father, that's what we're learning about, not just religion, but real religion. And so now as we continue our study through the practical, functional, hyper-ethical book of James, may we emerge with a better understanding of who you are and, by extension, who we are, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. All right, let's go to James chapter 2. Join me there, please. James chapter 2. James and the second chapter. I guess I do like the height of this table. It's not so high after all. I'm hearing this mic whisper a little bit, so I'm going to put it here on my, the front of me. Maybe it it'll, won't be so noisy. Okay, uh, we are in a series called Religion, James, in 10 parts. Our sermon today is just two words, two syllables, and the two words are faith that. Faith that. And uh, the meaning of that will become clear as the sermon goes on. Let's just remind ourselves of where we are. James writes his letter not to a specific location, such as with the letter to the Ephesians or the Galatians or the Philippians, but he writes his letter to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And we've discussed how these are isolated groups of almost entirely, certainly mostly Jewish followers of Jesus who have been displaced from their ancestral homeland. They are impoverished and in some cases are persecuted. Right? James is writing to these people, these little scattered small groups, but it's a church that is not only geographically displaced, but the concern of James's heart, his pastoral heart, is that the church is becoming spiritually displaced, and he's beginning to see a loss of spiritual moorings, a loss of sort of a solidity, and so he writes to what he calls a worldly situation. Right? He, he says, hey, I don't want you to, to be into worldly things, and I don't know what comes to your mind, but when, when, when James talks about worldly, this is what he means, and we've noted these last week. An unethical deference to the rich, we talked about. Judgmental indifference to the poor, we will pick that up again this Sabbath. Uncontrolled critical speech, which Joel will tackle next week and the following week. Earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. Uh, number five, violent, unnecessary quarrels. He says, fights break out among you, right? You're so spiritless that you're arguing among yourselves. Number six, selfish pleasure-seeking. Number seven, boastful arrogance. And finally, for James, what is the, under, uh, the, 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 the undercurrent of all of this worldliness, and that is what he calls double-mindedness toward God, double-mindedness. And so James is writing to a church that is not only geographically displaced, but he's concerned is increasingly spiritually displaced, that they are losing their moorings in Christ and in the message of the gospel. So we concluded last week with this admonition from myself. Let's really sink our teeth into this biblical and beautiful notion of an authentic counterculture. The idea that if the whole world, worldly, that's where the term comes from, if the whole world is going this way, then the church says we're going to go this way. 
right? If the, church, if the world is behaving in that way, the church is going to behave in this way. And so it's a counterculture. I love that word, by the way. The idea that there's not just a culture in the church, but there's a church, a culture rather that's counter to the larger prevailing culture of the world. And the last slide that we had last, last week is we want to be a member of a church where Jesus is worshipped and obeyed as King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you say amen to that? Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Okay, now we are into new material. And what we're going to find here in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, all the way to the end of the chapter, is the most controversial and theologically dense section of James' letter. There's five chapters in James. We're going to do it in ten parts, basically dividing each chapter up into two, right? Those are sort of bite-sized chunks. And here in the latter half of James chapter 2, we're going to get into what is the most controversial and most theologically dense section of the book of James. And I think Joel was happy that I was preaching it, and I would have been happy for Joel to have preached it. It's not an easy section. I've spent hours this week poring over this, and I'm really excited to share with you what has emerged from my study. This is the section that you might be familiar with where James is going to discuss at length the relationship between faith and works. Faith and works. And... uh, there's, there's the appearance, when you read it, especially at first blush, that James is actually contradicting or standing in opposition to things that the Apostle Paul says. And it was, for example, Martin Luther's passion about the ministry of Paul and the theology of Paul that caused him to regard the letter of James as what he called an epistle of straw. Good to see you back, Lapo. Good to see you back, Matt. He said that's an epistle of straw. Right? Paul built a theology of rock and of brick and of stability, but this, this salvation by works thing that James is talking about, Luther even went so far as to say he would have been perfectly pleased to have had the book of James not even in the Bible. Not even in the Bible. So today what we're going to try and do is disentangle this perceived hostility and adversity between uh, Paul and James. Now, in order to do that, we're going to teach you a new word. It's probably not new to all of you, but it will be new to some of you. And that is the word interlocutor. Raise your hand if you know what that word means, an interlocutor. Okay, there's one. Where's Rochelle Chapman when you need her? Okay, so we're going to learn a new word here. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, finds James debating with an unseen interlocutor about the nature of faith. An interlocutor is somebody that partakes in a dialogue. Right? If you get into a debate or a discussion with somebody, you are an interlocutor. What we're going to find here in this section is that James is debating or discussing or dialoguing with an unseen opponent. Let me just show you that. Take a look at verse 14, which is our first verse we're going to be looking at. Verse 14 says, What does it profit, my brothers, if someone says... There's the interlocutor. Right? There's an opponent over here. James is talking to his church. James is writing to his church, but James knows that there are people who are advising his church in ways that he regards as uh, egregious and as incorrect and as unethical. And so he's going to debate this person over here, this unseen interlocutor, in front of, we do this, you know, sometimes, you know, in front of our children or in front of our friends or whatever. We get into a little debate, and there's people that are looking in. Now, James doesn't have the luxury of FaceTime or of, you know, Google Hangouts like we have today. So he's going he's gonna to debate this unseen person, okay, in front of his church, and he's going to do so in a letter. Um, if you jump down to verse 18, ver- verse 18 says, but someone will say, there's the interlocutor, I know that someone will say this or someone has said this. And then finally, verse 20, do you want to know, O foolish man? 
Here he actually addresses point blank this unseen interlocutor. He says, you're, you're a fool. You're a fool. And so in this section, verses 14 to 26, what we're going to find is that we are listening in kind of to a debate. We're listening in to a, to a, to a phone conversation in which we're not going to just hear one side of the phone conversation. James is going to tell us what the, what's happening on the other end of the phone line. Okay? And that hostile adversarial relationship is going to be really helpful as we discuss and as we try to better understand the nature of faith from James' perspective. Now, James is going to say not once, not twice, but thrice that there is a kind of faith that is what he calls a dead faith. That's verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. Okay? He says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have, depending on your translation, works, deeds, or action, he says is dead. Okay? Number two, faith without works, deeds, action, depending on your translation, is useless. And then again in verse 26, faith without works, deeds, actions, action is dead. Now, in the English, very few English translations pick up on two, even three, fascinating little plays on word in the Greek, right? Little, little idiomatic expressions that sound really clever, really smart in the Greek, but the, but the English is just kind of clumsy, Okay, if you translated them exactly as they could be translated, it would sound clumsy, like, like an idiomatic expression like, go fly a kite, right? That's what we call an idiom, and if you literally translated go fly a kite into a language that doesn't have that idiom, which basically means get out of my face, well, there's another idiom, right? So what happens is with these little plays on words or these little idiomatic expressions, when you just translate them straight across, sometimes it doesn't come across, and in the Greek, there are several purposeful little plays on words where James is going to contrast a living, actionable faith and a dead, inactive, inert faith. Okay, so three times, dead faith, dead faith, dead faith. And in each case, he says this dead faith is a faith that doesn't have action, it doesn't have, it doesn't have deeds, and it doesn't have works. What we're going to do now, let's just read down to about verse 19. We'll pick it up in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says, there's the interlocutor, he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? We'll come back and go through this more carefully, but I just want to read down to verse 19. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, here he picks up the very same analogy that he was using last week or in chapter 1 that we looked at last week, right? The, the rich and the poor, the gold-fingered man and the filthy-garmented man. And he's going to use that same illustration here, right? Because socioeconomic differentiation was a massive issue in the days of James. There were the haves and the have-nots, the landowners and the workers, right? It's not much different today. We do live, most of us, in an emergent middle class, but in addition to the emergent middle class that most of us take for granted as an economic reality, there are also the uber elite and the very poor, okay? And that was more, that resembled more closely the world that James is in, right? And so he's going to use that illustration here again. He's going to say, hey, what if somebody comes in who is naked and destitute of daily food? Verse 16, and one of you says to them, oh, depart, be in peace, be warm and be f- filled, be full with food. But you do not give them the things that are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what's our word? The word is dead. Or workless is literally the translation. Faith without works is workless. But it's kind of weird in the English. They just say faith without works is dead. Okay, that's one of those little plays on words there. Verse 18. But someone will say, there's the interlocutor. I know there's going to be someone over here, this unseen debate 
partner, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Oh, good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. We'll stop there. Okay, you get the feel here. It's not, you don't have to know Greek at all. Just, just a quick cursory reading of it in the English will reveal there's this adversarial posture going on here. James is debating with somebody, and he wants his congregation to listen in to the debate. Okay? James' James opponent or his adversary is saying, I have faith. And James is saying, yeah, if you have faith, where is the works that demonstrate that you have faith? And there's the debate. That's going to be the point of rub that we're going to see as we carry on here. The first thing that we have to just sort of get right on the table at the outset is that James is not contrasting faith and works. This will become key for us. So much as an authentic faith and a defective faith or a faulty faith. Okay, get that picture in your mind there. That's, uh, we oversimplify and we flatten the passage when we say, oh, this is James discussing faith and works. No, it's not. This is James discussing authentic faith and defective faith. Authentic faith, James is going to tell us, will manifest itself in works. Defective faith will be alone. Okay, we're going to pick that up. We're going to pick that up. You're going to see that more and more as the debate rages on. James chapter 2, verse 14, what good is that, my brothers, this is in the NIV, and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, not just says that they have faith, but claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save him? If you're reading King James or New King James, that, that, that is missed, that little element there. Your, your translation, like mine, King James, I just read you New King James, will say, can faith save? But there's a little article there in the Greek, and it's, a, it's an article that refers back to an antecedent. It, it refers back to something. So it's not just can faith save, but it's can that faith save? Can such faith save? What faith? Faith that is not authentic. Faith that lacks action, words, or works, and deeds. Here's another one in the NLT. Notice this. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your what, everyone? Actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? So this is important. It's just a great little subtlety right out of the gate. In verse 14, he's not simply saying, can faith save, which is the sort of flattened version that you get in the King James and the New King James. What it's saying is there's an article there that refers back to the faith that he's been describing. Can that faith save? Can such a faith save? And the, the answer, the implied answer is what? What's the implied answer? No, you might remember last week, James asked one, two, three questions, right? What are called rhetorical questions in which in each case he assumed a positive answer. He assumed a yes, a yes, a yes. Here he's going to do the very same kind of thing. And by the way, this section that we have here is, is actually a technical piece of writing that is very common in the ancient Near East. And even prior to that, it's what's called a diatribe. How many people have heard that before, a diatribe? We sort of take a diatribe to mean, you know, like a real, oh, I stuck it to him. I really was a strong words of action and, and you're sort of berating someone. That's true. But the technical use of diatribe is a, an ongoing discussion or a dialogue. That's what this is. This is technically a piece of literature in which James is using rhetorical devices by asking questions that he knows the answer to and he knows that you know the answer to, but he's in an and, and a posture here of, of debate. He's in a posture of, of a, a polemical posture here. He's challenging. This isn't a nice 
you know, sweet, flowery, flowery pastoral letter, James is deeply concerned that his local churches have lost their spiritual moorings and they're being moved around, not just geographically, but spiritually. And they're being moved around by ideas that sound a little persuasive, right? Not only are they being moved around, but as we talked about last week, by this, this inequitable treatment between the gold-fingered man and the filthy-garmented man, but now this idea that you don't really need to do anything, you just need to have faith. And James' question is, can that faith save? And the implied answer is what? No way. No way. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? Okay, let's continue on here. The use of the word claim in verse 14, it's not that they have faith. It's that they claim to have faith. Is critically important because it introduces us to the notion that hypocrisy is in play. Hypocrisy, of course, comes from the Greek word meaning to act or an actor. So a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing, does another. That's the, that's, the, that's the basic definition of hypocrisy. To say you have faith, but not to act in a way that is in keeping with that, the claim is what's at stake here. The person doesn't actually have faith, not saving faith. They have the claim to faith. Interestingly, if you take a look at the last part there of verse 14, it says, can such faith save him? Guess what word that is, save? It's the word sozo. Have you eaten it sozo yet? Right? Can, can such faith sozo him? Can it save him? Can it heal him? By the way, they have an all-new menu. They didn't ask me to say this. All-new menu. The food is very good. Hats off to Druin. You're kicking goals. I'm proud of you. Okay, so, so hypocrisy is in play here, and hypocrisy has already been introduced to us, not by that word, but the concept has already been introduced to us earlier in the very same book. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be, what's the next word, everyone? Doers of the word and not, what's the next word? Hearers only. Because if you did that, you would trick somebody. You would deceive somebody. Who would you deceive? you deceive yourself. So this idea that you're going to say one thing and do another, what we call colloquially as hypocrisy, is what James has in mind here. If somebody says, I have faith, but doesn't have actions, words, or deeds that are consistent with the profession of faith, can that kind of faith save? And James says, no, because what we're dealing with here is a claim that is not backed up, is not buttressed by reality. It's not buttressed by the facts of the matter. The question is not, what good is faith without works, but what good is it to say you have faith when no visible works are present? Already we're beginning to see that there is not a contradiction between James and Paul, and we'll get to that at the end. What James is addressing here is the hypocritical claim, laying, laying claim on faith, when in fact the works demonstrate that the faith is merely a claim, and there's nothing substantive there. Notice, too, that James uses, in my translation, what profit is it? NIV says, what good is it? Two times. Look at verse 14 again. What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, and then jump down to verse 16, look at the last part of verse 16. It says, you do not give them the things that are needed for the body. What does it profit? What I like about this is that James takes a very utilitarian and pragmatic approach to religion. He's not a, he's not a pie in the sky, by and by theologian. James, just his lessons have legs and his faith has feet. He wants to know, how does it work? How does, how does it actually work? What good is it? 
James' repetition of that phrase evidences his practical and ethical perspective. Don't talk to me about theology. Don't talk to me about these, you know, you know, ethereal truths, these ambient truths out in the atmospheric heavens of philosophy and theology. James says, I want to know, does it work? Now, I am a thinker, and I'm, a, I, I'm just wired that way. But one of the things that's tricky for people like me is to realize that most of my congregation doesn't spend a lot of time wrestling over Paul's use of certain Greek phrases and idioms, right? And my mind, and this is a tricky thing for a lot of preachers, like a lot of preachers are inclined theologically, they're inclined philosophically. We like to think, we want to be sure we're thinking right, right? But I would say just in round figures, somewhere between 25 and 50% of the congregation is, really cares about that stuff. And the other 75 to 50% says, yeah, 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 that's all fine and good, but how does it work? They're not just thinkers, and they're not just theologians, they're doers. By the way, we need both. I'm not trying to play them off against one another here. I want to be a thinker and a doer. James, on the, on the, ed, on the scale, if you were going to put James on the scale, Paul would be on the thinking end of the scale. He was clearly a doer as well, but the man had a, it was a giant intellect. James is on the doing end of the scale. What, 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 what good is it? What good is it? Right? He's not dealing here with pie-in-the-sky philosophy and Ethereum. He's, he says, I want to know, show me. Show me. Show me the money. Show me that it works. You got religion? You got the claim to faith? You got the claim to Jesus? Show me the money. Show me that it actually works. Put your money where your mouth is. James's letter to the scattered tribe, this is a slide from last week, we already noted, is fiercely practical, functional, and ethical. James has no time for mealy-mouth religiosity, right? People that claim but don't. This sort of milk-toast, vanilla version of Christianity where as long as we look Christian and we talk Christian and we sing Christian songs, then that's all fine and good. That's why Joel and I have called this series Religion. Not just religion. Religion isn't going to cut it. No, 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 no. James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. Don't talk to me about your highbrow theology. Not that James wasn't theologically minded. He was. But his balance was toward praxis, right? What's called orthopraxis versus orthodoxy, right? We're going to talk about orthodoxy in just a second. Okay, pragmatism defined. I just looked this up. Yesterday, pragmatism is an approach that assesses the truth of meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their, what are the next two words? Practical application. I'm looking at my brother Sam Bonello over there. Sam Bonello is a pragmatist, right? I think you're a bit of a thinker too, but the guy's a pragmatist. I'll just give you one little story. No, I won't. I don't want, no, I will. (laughs) One of my sons may or may not have been having a situation at his local school. He may or may not have. And the head elder of the church may or may not have advised my son to punch him in the nose. It was a situation that required a solution, and Sam didn't take the high-browed, ethical, philosophical approach. He took the pragmatic approach. I think if you punch him in the head, that behavior will stop. Sorry about that, Sam. I had no plans to tell that story. And I know you don't care anyway. Um, I, can, I can confirm that clearer heads prevailed and there was no violence. But that's my, the point is this. The point is this. Pragmatists tend to not be particularly nuanced thinkers. 
Now, that's where this doesn't describe Sam. Sam is a very careful thinker. But, but, but a, a pragmatist is somebody who just says, does it work? Let, let's just make it work. And you get the sense here that, that James leans toward a utilitarian view of things. I just want to know if your claim about religiosity, your claim about an attachment to faith, I just want to know, does it work? Does it work? And friends, I want to tell you this. Your coworkers and your non-Christian family members and friends do not care what you believe. Did you hear what I said? They don't care. Your non-Christian, irreligious, atheistic, or agnostic friends do not care what you believe. But they care hugely about how you behave, how you conduct yourself. If your religion is real, if your religion is authentic, it will filter down into some manifestation of behavior that your unconverted or unbelieving or atheistic friend or family member will be able to say, well, you know, I think he's a total idiot when it comes to belief in God, but he's a great human being. I think she's totally out to lunch with this whole God thing, but she, she is a wonderful person. Are you with me? So you and I, we can come to church and we can praise Jesus and we can say, "Woo, hallelujah, I want you to believe just the right thing. And I do want you to believe just the right thing. You notice I'm very passionate about believing what Scripture says. But I just want you to know, as soon as you leave the walls of this church, people out there don't care what you believe. If they have an antagonistic posture, they just want to say, does it work? They take a very utilitarian perspective when it comes to religion. Is it actually working? So if you have a Christian person who behaves in gossipy ways or unkind ways or backbiting ways, if you have a Christian person who behaves in those ways, it it, it is full well within the right of the unbeliever, the atheist, or the agnostic to be dismissive of your religious experience if they don't see it trickling down into your basic behavior and attitude. Amen. That's James. That's James. James says, what what good is it? That's what I want to know. We'll talk theology in a moment, but let's start with praxis. Let's start with, does it work? How does it help the orphan? How does it help the widow? How does it help the filthy, garmented man? How does it help the person who's naked and who's hungry? Service and sacrifice is a major feature we've already seen in the book of James. He's talked about widows and orphans, a poor man in filthy clothes, the poor of this world in James chapter 2, verse 5. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here he says, someone naked and hungry. James' theology finds itself planted firmly in the real world. This is not the ivory tower of some educational institution. This is the real world of how does this affect people who are disenfranchised and disconnected from the haves of the world. On that point, it's a very important one. We'd mentioned before that James' James's teaching is almost atmospherically Christ-centered. He doesn't, he doesn't, Paul talks a lot about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished sort of as, as an observer or what we would say a theologian, okay? James just, just atmospherically, just easily, almost unconsciously, just blah, 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 the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the ideas of Jesus just fall out of his mouth. And this is a case in point. It's a virtual certainty that what James has in mind right here is Jesus' well-known parable at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's also found in the Gospel of Luke. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. This is the very same language of James. 
Somebody comes in. Hey, 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 I got a question for you. He says to the unseen interlocutor, I got a question. And he knows that his congregation is listening in. If a person who is naked, not literally naked, it means underclothed for the conditions, right? Somebody who needs clothes. If an unclothed and, and uh, a poorly clothed or inadequately clothed person and a hungry person comes in, I want to know what does your faith do? How does your faith relate to that situation? Here, just in an almost atmospheric sense, the teachings of Jesus are just flowing unhindered from James. James, who had such a close association with Jesus. Fascinatingly, one of the critiques, one of the critiques of early Christianity, primitive Christianity, and remember, James is an early, early, early Christian document, as early as 43 AD or, or AD 44, very early in the piece, okay? Fascinatingly, one of the critiques of early Christianity, first, second, and third century Christianity, watch this, Celsus, who was a, a vigorous critic of Christianity, and a, a Greek philosopher from the second century, notice what he says. He's critiquing Christians here. He's saying they're ridiculous. Why are they ridiculous, Celsus? Here's his answer. Far from us, say these Christians, be any man possessed of any culture of wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people. Notice that, contemptible. Who do they convert? Idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones they manage to turn into believers. Celsus' critique is, there's no who's who in the Christian church. The only people they can manage to convert are the lowest of the low, the most destitute, the off-scouring of the earth. And you know what's interesting about that? Celsus' critique is largely accurate. Exactly. Praise God. That's exactly right, Leon. His critique is, you know, the, the who's who of the world are not followers of a crucified Messiah. Right? And they were right. For the most part, it was, in fact, look at this, from the 4th century, this is the uh, Roman emperor Julian in the 4th century, notice his critique of Christians. He says atheism, which is what the Romans called Christians, which is kind of weird, sounds weird to us that they would call the Christians atheists, but they called them atheists because they denied all of the gods of the Roman Empire, the state gods. They said there's just one God, the true God, and so they were called atheists by the Romans. And so notice what Julian says. Atheism, or Christianity, has been specially advanced through the, what are those next two words? Through the loving service. Why don't you say those two words with me? Through the loving service rendered to who? Strangers. And through their care for the burial of the dead. That's a fascinating little thing. In the ancient world, as in modern times, they, people were very fastidious about the burial of the dead. We are today, too. Very fastidious. And if you didn't have the money to afford a proper burial, you would just chuck your loved one in the city dump or go throw them in the woods or in the lake. I mean, it was really an ignominious way to dispatch of somebody that was your father or your brother or your mother. So what the Christians would do, this is amazing ministry that the early Christians had in the second and third centuries. They would go to people who were poor, who couldn't afford a proper burial, and they would fund the service. They, they, they would fund funeral services, and people said, man, who are these people that care about the dignity of my deceased? Who are these people that care about the dignity of my deceased father, my deceased mother, my deceased son? Look at what Julian says, through their care for the burial of the dead, he says, it is a scandal that there is not one single Jew, he lumps Jews and Christians here together, who is a beggar. None of those people are begging. The godless Galileans, those are the Christians, care not only for their own, who? Poor, but for ours as well. They're not just looking out for one another. They care for our poor as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Fascinating. Celsus' critique and Julian's critique of Christianity was, man, they spend a lot of time caring for the poor. 
In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul describes when he went up and he met Peter, James, and John. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They recognized the grace that was given to me. This is when Paul had met with them and said, look, we've been preaching to the Gentiles just like you guys have been preaching to the Jews. Now watch this. This is key. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now watch this. This is what Peter, James, and John say to Paul and to Barnabas. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And then notice what Paul says. That was the very thing I was so eager to do. Man, I I was just so eager to help the poor. I was so eager to help the needy. I was so eager to help the disenfranchised. And and when they they had their parting of the ways with Peter, James, and John, when when Paul and Barnabas left Jerusalem for the first time, they said, hey, hey, one more thing before you go. All that other stuff we talked about was really important. But don't forget the poor. And Paul says, man, I'm so glad you said that because that's where my heart is too. Well, why would Peter and James and John's and, and James that write, James the brother of Jesus, why would their heart be with the poor? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus' heart was with the poor. Because God's heart is with the poor. And we saw last week that there was a negative correlation between wealth and, and religiosity. We saw that. So I don't know how you fish, right? I'm a fisherman. But how I fish is I go where the fish are biting. And I say, you know, where are the fish not biting? Well, they're not biting over there. Well, let me go there. No. One of the reasons that the early church grew among the poor is that these were the people that were interested. These are the people that had needs. These were the people that were destitute. These were the people that were reachable. We talked last week about those, you know, when you got plenty of zeros in your bank account, right, and you're, you're, you're doing great, the need for God, the need for religion, the need for something else is just decreased. It doesn't mean it, it's totally eclipsed, but there is a demonstrable correlation, negative correlation between an increase in finances and a decrease in religiosity. So the reason that the church grew is because those are the people that were interested. Those are the ones that they, could, that they could sink the good news of the gospel into. And so we could say it this way. If our Christianity is not ministering to the poor and needy, then it's not Christianity. You can call it Seventh-day Adventism. You can call it whatever. You can call it church. You can call it whatever you want. But don't put Christ in it. Don't put Christ in it because Christ was consumed with the care of the poor and the needy and the estranged and the outcast. James' point is not faith plus works or faith and works, but a faith, what's the next word? A faith that works, and that's our sermon title. Faith that. So what you don't want to do is have in your mind, oh, no, no, we need faith and works. Not true. We need faith plus works. Not true. What that does is it introduces an artificial distinction between faith and works. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not like, oh, I have faith. Well, I'm going to throw in a little works as well. What James is going to say is you need an authentic faith, not a faulty faith, not a defective faith. You need a faith that works. What good is it? How does it benefit the hungry? How does it benefit the person who has a need? By the way, we live, most of us here, in an area that is certainly not without poor people. There are people among us that are poor, but we have other needs in our community here. We also have that need. I'm not suggesting that we don't, but there are other basic needs. People need an ear. People need an arm around them. People need a prayer. People need comfort. There are other ways to minister to the needy than just financial offerings and gifts. We'll get to that in just a second. When I think about this relationship between faith and works, I go back to this statement from the Great Controversy because I read this statement about 20 years ago, and for me, it just doesn't come clearer than this. In this beautiful retelling of the conversion of the great reformer John Wesley, and I'm looking forward to being in Europe for the Reformation Tour coming up, so excited about that, 
But one of the great English reformers, John Wesley, had actually been a missionary in America, okay? And he was then on a trip back to England. And on that trip back to England, there was a frightful storm, and everybody on the boat thought they were going to die, but John was on the boat with a bunch of Moravian missionaries, and these Moravian missionaries seemed to be totally unafraid of death. The women, the children, they were just, they seemed as calm as if the waters were calm. And John was deeply concerned by this because he was terrified to die, even though he was a believer in Jesus. Terrified to die. And so when the storm settled and, and in fact no one had died, Wesley went to the head of the Moravian Missionary Society there that was on the boat returning to England and said, I got a question. That was really freaky in the storm. I was freaking out. All the other sailors are freaking out, but you Moravians seemed unafraid to die. In fact, your women and your children seemed unafraid to die. And they said, well, the, the, the man responded, why should we be afraid to die? We know Jesus. And in that moment, John thought, whoa, these people have a connection that I don't have. And he went back, and when he got to England, he thought, man, these people know Jesus. Anybody who can go through a storm like that with calmness and peace, I'm going to their meeting. And here's an amazing thing. John Wesley went to a meeting of the Moravian Missionary Society, sat down in the back seat in London, or the back uh, row in London, England, and they were reading. Does anybody know from what? They were reading from Luther's commentary on the book of Romans reading about the great truth of the gospel. And, and Wesley says, who'd been a believer in Jesus for decades at that point, two decades, when he heard the gospel from the pages of Luther's commentary on Romans, he was like, what have I been believing? And he said it was like a flash of light. All of a sudden, he understood righteousness by faith in a moment. And now he, he tells the story. This is the story that Ellen White's recounting. It's amazing. And she says this, Through long years, he was reflecting back on his conversion, Wesley. Through long years of wearisome and comfortless striving, years of rigorous self-denial, of reproach and humiliation, Wesley had steadfastly adhered to his one purpose of seeking God. Ah, he was devout. He was very religious. Now he had found him in that Moravian Missionary Society meeting. And watch what he found, my friends. He found that the grace that he had toiled labored to win by prayers and fasts, by offerings and self-renunciation, was a gift. Can somebody say amen? Was a gift without money and without price. Well, what happened then? What happened to Wesley when he realized that salvation is a gift? Well, once established in the faith of Christ, his soul burned with the desire. That's where we get the phrase on fire from. His soul burned with the desire to spread everywhere a knowledge of the glorious gospel of God's free grace. And then this, then this. He continued his strict and self-denying life. In other words, he didn't go clubbing. He's not like, trusting in Jesus. No, he continued to live the same life. He continued his self-denying life. Now watch this. These are her italics, not mine. Not now as the ground, but the result of faith. Not the root but the fruit of holiness. Ah. Total paradigm shift. The grace of God in Christ is the foundation of the Christian's hope, and this is key. And that hope, that grace, will be manifested in obedience. What's the word, everyone? It will be manifested. Okay, well, that raises the question. What does the word manifested mean? Manifest. Display or show by one's acts or appearance, to demonstrate or to become apparent. Now, this is key. What he's saying is, is that obedience 
and action and deeds and works are not the ground of your religious experience. They're the fruit of your religious experience. They show what's there. They manifest what's there. They demonstrate what's there. And this is James's point. His point is not faith and works. It's faith, what word am I going to say right here? It's faith that works. It's faith that works. Only, there's several different ways we could say this, only where works are seen, only where works are seen is authentic, biblical, saving faith really present. That's James's point. If there's real faith, if there's biblical faith, if there's authentic faith, works will be seen necessarily and naturally. True faith, biblical faith, will be shown, demonstrated, and manifested by action. That was Wesley's experience. He thought that his obedience and that his works and that his deeds and his actions were the ground of his faith. When he went to that Moravian Missionary Society meeting, he realized, no, that's not true. That's the result of my faith. The ground is the righteousness of Christ. The ground is the great good news of the glorious gospel. Obedience is the fruit of the root of the gospel. So it's not faith plus, it's not faith and, say it with me, it's faith that. Together again, it's faith that. That's the title of the sermon, faith that. You'll notice it's quite interesting there. James uses this interesting thing where he says, verse 19, you believe that there is one God. You do well, even the demons believe that, and they even tremble. Here James continues his debate with his interlocutor, and he's quite sarcastic here. I mean, this is just damning sarcasm. He says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You believe there's one God. This is what the Hebrews call the Shema. This is the most beloved and holy text in all of the Old Testament to a Jewish person. It's called the Shema. It comes from the first word there, here. Here, it's Shema. This is what the Jews call the Shema. And the Shema is, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Right? And, and so what James is doing here is he's saying, you believe doctrinal orthodoxy. You believe the great truth that God is one. Now, good for you. I got news for you. The demons believe the same thing. The demons are also monotheists. The demons have correct doctrine. And he says they even tremble. So we're James goes with this is actually, frankly, terrifying for Seventh-day Adventists. It's this, that doctrinal orthodoxy will not cover actionless faith toward the poor, the hurting, and the needy. That's his point. He says, oh, 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 you know that Jesus entered the most holy place in 1844 to begin the investigative judgment? Good for you. So do the demons. Oh, you believe that when you die, you sleep the sleep of death and await the resurrection? Oh, good for you. So do the demons. Oh, you believe that you shouldn't eat pork and lobster and you should stay away from, from things that don't have fins and scales and, 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 and cloven hoof. and uh, Good for you. So do the demons. Oh, you believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So do the demons. Doctrinal orthodoxy, James says, don't talk to me about doctrinal orthodoxy. I want to know how it works. What good is it? Show me the money, James says. Put your money where your mouth is. Don't talk to me about religion. As such, the demons know the truth. In fact, I like to say it this way. It's one thing to have the truth, and it's quite another for the truth to have us. Oh, we have the truth. We're the remnant church. We have the truth. Oh, well, good for you. Your granddad was a Seventh-day Adventist. 
Good for you. Your grandmother was a Christian. You don't have the truth. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. You can't sneak in because your dad was a believer or your mom was a believer. What do you mean we have the truth? Does that mean you have a Bible in your house? Friends, to have the truth is almost irrelevant. To have the truth have you. That's the point. That's the point. A mere intellectual assent to religiosity is quite irrelevant to James. And frankly, it's quite irrelevant to God. It was Jesus himself said, there will be many that say to me on that day, oh, but Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, you had the right doctrine. I just wish I knew you. I was busy hanging out with the impoverished. I was busy hanging out with the poor. I was busy hanging out in, with, the, with the, the people that live on the dump in Kenya. I was, that's where I was. Where were you? Oh, you were in the coffee shop. Don't get me wrong. You go to the coffee shop if you want. Just don't drink the coffee. Unless you're into poisoning yourself, that's up to you. Friends, right doctrine will not cover wrong behavior. Can somebody say amen to that? Right doctrine will not cover wrong behavior. You have all the right doctrine in the world. And James says, and by the way, don't miss this. Don't miss this. His primary concern is not about all the stuff you won't be doing. That's the way we often think about last generation theology. You hear a lot of talk in, in, in certain circles about this. Oh, will, will the last generation be sinless? Will they not be sinning? Friends, the last generation will not be characterized so much by what they're not doing, but, but by what they are doing. Jesus' life is not primarily a litany of things he didn't do. Read the Gospels. It's all the stuff he did. And, and what is it that he did? Oh, man, he made himself available to the leper. He made himself available to the Roman centurion. He made himself available to the woman at the well. He made himself available to the bleeding woman who touched him on the garment. I love this. Right doctrine will not cover wrong behavior. Not right now or in the judgment to come. See, this is the thing. I did this little experiment a few years ago. I, I don't tell a lot of people this. I did this little experiment like probably five years ago. Oh, probably eight years ago now. Where there was this really... Uh, reasonably famous radio station in America. It's a syndicated radio station called K-Love. K-L-U-V. K-Love. And, uh, you know, the Christian radio station, they sort of syndicate it, franchise it in different areas. And so one day I got into a car that I had borrowed and K-Love was on and it was actually a song that I liked. So I just listened to the song. And then there was about five songs I didn't like and then there was another song I liked. And then these talkers came on and started sort of talking and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I listened to just enough of it to have a feel for the flavor of K-Love. 91.3. Whatever. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen to K-Love until I hear the word judgment, sin, or repentance. Are those biblical ideas, judgment, sin, and repentance? Are those ideas saturative in Scripture? Yes, I said, I'm just going to listen to K-Love because it was just all love and grace and mercy. And by the way, there's no bigger believer in love, grace, and mercy than me. But you've got to tell the whole story. You can't just tell half the story. You've got to tell the story. The biblical story is that love is just, and love does hate sin. And so I said, I'm going to listen until I hear jump, judgment, sin, or repentance. I stopped listening after two weeks. I just got tired of the music. Never said it. Just that doesn't come up. Friends, don't think that because certain people in certain songs and certain ministries and certain churches and certain pastors don't talk about judgment that there's not going to be one. No, there is. There is going to be a judgment, and the judgment is not something to be afraid of, not at all. Not if you are a devoted follower of Jesus and you're trusting and totally believing in Him, but if you have this sort of quasi, 
havsy-wavsy, half-baked religiosity that's little more than a culture, a culture club or a country club, yet the judgment would be absolutely terrifying because your hypocrisy will be found out. Your du duplicity will be found out. Your double-mindedness will be found out. In the Psalms, David cries out, Lord, judge me! He's not afraid of the judgment because he knows that insofar as it's possible, he's made his heart right with God. Doesn't the Scripture say, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? The judgment is not terrifying if you are a devoted follower of Jesus. Can somebody say amen? In fact, the judgment's good news because it's God's wrath against evildoers and evil. The judgment is something that Christians should be longing for and looking forward to. But for many of us, we like have this like kind of sheer, or not, maybe not sheer, but this like sort of uneasy terror about the judgment. Well, friends, the, the only explanation for that must be that there is some residual hypocrisy in your experience. So the, the thing to do is to, to say, God, take that away from me. I don't want a faith that says but doesn't do. This idea that because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, or because I believe the Sabbath is Saturday, or because I return tithe, that everything's going to be fine in the judgment. No, not necessarily. We mentioned this last week, and we're going to land this here in a few minutes. James' letter has a kind of Old Testament flavor and feel, kind of like the book of Proverbs. If you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll notice that again and again and again and again, the book of Proverbs says, Thou fool, thou fool, thou fool, thou fool, thou fool, thou fool. Notice James in verse 20. But do you want to know, O fool, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now, it's interesting because James here returns to the singular you. Do you, do you want to know? Singular you. When James writes in general, he writes to the plural you. He's writing to his congregation. But when he addresses his interlocutor, he says, you. In the English, it's difficult because we have one word, you, for both the, the plural and the singular. But in the Greek, it's really obvious here what's happened. James has gone back now to addressing this unseen interlocutor with whom he's debating. Now, watch this. He's going to give the example of Abraham. Two examples, actually, Abraham and Rahab. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you not see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That's the verse right there, verse 24, that makes a lot of people super nervous because it sounds like a direct contradiction to the Apostle Paul. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. In the last few minutes here, let's just talk about Abraham and Rahab. First of all, what the, the passage that... James has in mind is the same passage that Paul has in mind repeatedly, and that's Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, in the New King James Version, Abraham believed Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Accounted it, like the word accountant, okay? An accountant. Now, that word is a fascinating word. I'll give you two other translations here. Notice the NIV. Abraham believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He counted it. He credited it, and I like the NASB probably best of all in this. Abram believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. So what this text is not saying is that Abraham was actually righteous. It's that he was counted as righteous. He was reckoned as righteous. He was credited as righteous. But what James says here almost seems contradictory to that. It sounds like he's saying he was righteous because of what he did. 
Wasn't he justified by works? Well, let's see if we can unpack this. For James, Abraham's actions flowed naturally from his faith and his trust in Yahweh's faithfulness. Abraham believed, so he sacrificed. Okay, he didn't believe and sacrifice. He didn't have faith and sacrifice. He had the kind of faith that works. Not faith and works, not faith plus works, but faith, what word am I going to say here? Faith that works. Faith that works. James versus Paul, the answer is no, absolutely not, for a number of reasons. The first and most obvious is that they're writing at different times and under different circumstances. This is James writing in as early as AD 44. Paul's not going to write his first letter, the letter to the Galatians, until t- 10 years later, AD 54, AD 53, 54. Okay? So, so they're not, they're, there's no sense in which James has gone co- combing through the, the letters of Paul and is directly contradicting Paul. The letters of Paul don't exist yet. Okay, that's number one. Number two, not only has he not read the letters, this is almost very likely before James and Paul have even discussed faith and works or Paul's theology. It's it's possible that they've not really even met up to this point, or if they have met, it was just a casual encounter. So you can't have this idea that James is taking on Paul. In fact, there are some commentators, heaven forbid, that actually believe when James says, oh, foolish man, that that he's actually addressing Paul. It's like, dude, Look at the chronology. Paul isn't, Paul isn't even a fixture yet, a major fixture in early Christendom. Number three, they're ad- addressing different situations. And number four, the use of language in their terms is not identical. And the term that gets people really hung up is the word justified. That's one of Paul's most favorite terms. We are justified. The just shall live by faith. He lays hold on Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And here it's, I mean, James sure seems to be saying that you're Abraham was justified by works, and Rahab was justified by works. And this is a key point. It's slightly theological, for, for, so forgive me for this. For those of you that are, don't really care about this, it'll be a 60-second explanation. Paul's use of justified is what you might call the initiation of justification, or the original status that you have before God because of what Jesus has accomplished, the initiation of justification. That's not the way James is using the term. James is using it in what's called the eschatological sense, or the end-time sense. When it all comes out in the wash, he's saying that Abraham's works were manifested, were demonstrated, were justified. In fact, I'll show you a verse on that right here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Jesus says, for John, speaking of John the Baptist, neither he came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, man, this guy's got a demon. Look at him. He acts demonic. Then Jesus says, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they said, look, look at this guy. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. And then notice this key here. There's a key little sentence that Jesus drops. He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Okay, now just think of synonyms for justified. I'll ask you a question. It's a, it's a thought experiment that everybody can get. Is this saying that wisdom is made wise by its deeds? No, wisdom is wisdom. Wisdom is wisdom. But what it's saying is wisdom is wise. But what it's saying is when you see wisdom work itself out in actual, tangible, concrete ways, then you say, man, that was wise. The actions don't make wisdom wise. They show that it was wise all along. In that sense, Abraham was justified by works. Not because his works made him righteous, but his works demonstrated that he had been declared righteous and believed it all along. So when when Paul speaks about justification, he's talking about the initiation of the covenantal experience with Christ. And when James writes about it, he's talking about in an eschatological sense, or in the final analysis, wisdom will be justified by its children. Pretty cool. 
Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says, James and Paul, when properly interpreted in their own context, are not opposed to one another on this point of faith and works. Moo's exactly correct here. They give the appearance of a conflict. Sure, they do. The appearance, but the appearance is not the substance. They are writing from very different vantage points in order to combat very different problems, and Moo is exactly correct. So why Abraham and Hagar? This will be our final point. Why Abraham and Hagar? Those are two very different people in the Old Testament. Abraham is the towering figure of the Jewish faith. You, you don't have Jewishness. You don't have Judaism without Abraham. Abraham is the founder and the father, the patriarch of Judaism. Hagar is a reviled prostitute. Rahab, thank you. Rahab, thank you. Oh, I have, I have Hagar up there. That should say Rahab. Sorry about that. Um, that should say Abraham and Rahab. Number two, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Rahab is a lonely Gentile. Interesting. Abraham is a man, which in the ancient world meant a lot. Not just a man, but a wealthy man, a a patriarchal man. And Hagar, of course, or rather Rahab, of course, is a woman. She's a woman. Abraham performs an act of devotion when he goes to offer his son. And in a weird way, what Rahab does, even though it's credited as an act of faith, it was an act of deceit. Because when the people came to the city to say, hey, where are the men? They said, uh, maybe they went out that way. And there's so much in that. But the only thing I'm going to say, I'm just going to say this one little bit that's so cool. Your, your acts of obedience do not have to be perfect for God to accept them. They just have to be sincere. You will learn how to get better and better at obeying. Rahab, Rahab she, she, she told a lie. She was dishonest, but God said, you know what? Her heart was in the right place, and I can, I can work on the exact details and the mechanics of it, but her heart was in the right place. So what you have here is this really weird contrast between this towering figure of, Jew, of the Jewish faith and this like lowly Gentile woman who's a prostitute, and you know what's so cool? Do you know where Abraham and, and Rahab find their, their ultimate connection? It's in the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham, the, the, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And as you read through the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Rahab. So this, the, the point is so awesome. James is so brilliant. He's so poetic. The takeaway is unmistakable. He's saying faith is for everyone. Faith is for the Rahabs of the world, and faith is for the Abrahams of the world. Faith is for the lowly, de- dejected prostitute, and faith is, faith is for the, sil- the gold-fingered man, and faith is for the filthy-garmented man. Faith is for the hungry and the destitute, and faith is for the uber-wealthy. Faith is for everyone, right? To use these two people at both ends, uh, at the opposite ends of the social spectrum in, in the mentality of the people to whom James is writing was a stroke of absolute brilliance. He's saying that Abraham was no better off than Rahab. Both believed, both acted in accordance with that belief, and both, he says, will be justified. True faith, the faith that James is writing about, the faith that James is passionate about, the faith that James says, show me the money, show me the money, Faith that, not faith and, not faith plus, but faith that. True faith is always faith that clothes. True faith is faith that clothes. And true faith is faith that feeds. And true faith is faith that visits. Amen. Love those amens. We'll learn one of these days. True faith is faith that helps. Amen? Helps. True faith is faith that listens. 
I hear you, brother. My heart's with your heart. Faith that listens. True faith is faith that houses. True faith, shout out to Mel Burrett and her crew. True faith is faith that gives flowers. You, there it is, there it is, thank you. Right on time. And true faith is faith that, say it with me, faith that loves. Last verse, look at this verse. Let this verse sink into the fiber and fabric of your Christian soul. Let this verse sink into the fiber and fabric of your Christian soul. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision carries any weight. Orthodoxy. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith that loves. And that, my friends, is the faith of Jesus. Father in heaven, today we celebrate not our faith and certainly not our faithfulness. Lord, have mercy. Father, the faith that we want to celebrate today is the faith of Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus. Father, you have been faithful. The Spirit has been faithful. Your Son, Jesus, has been faithful. And Father, today, if we in some Rahab-like way, half, half wrong, half right-like way, doing our best to try and find a way forward, and Father, perhaps today in some hugely devoted way like Abraham, Father, wherever we are on that spectrum, there's people right here in this room all over that spectrum. Father, as we find our way forward in, in, in faith, may we not lose sight of the fact that it's not faith and, it's not faith plus, it's faith that. And the faith that is never our faith. It's the faith of Jesus. It's the faith that belongs to Him. It's the faith that He showed, the faith that He manifested, the faith that works by love and purifies the soul. Father, it's the faith spoken of in Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Father, we want to be those people. We want to be a church. We don't want to be the interlocutor, Father. We don't want to be the person that's saying, oh, no, 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 no. I don't need works. I got faith. We don't want to be that person. Father, we also don't want to be the congregation that's losing its spiritual moorings because of prosperity or other situations. Father, we want to be a people to whom James would say, yes, that is pure faith. That is pure religion. Visiting the widows and the orphans, the afflicted, the needy, those that need a listening ear, that teenager that's struggling. Father, we want to be those people that James would point to and say, that Jesus would point to and say, that's pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. Father, give us not just religion. Teach us how to have real religion is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen.